This is the Church Planting Podcast, brought to you by the Broadcast Network. Broadcast exists to support, train and encourage church planters. For more information about who we are or about the training that we offer, please visit our website at www.thebroadcastnetwork.org. I'm going to speak now on what I believe are some important leadership lessons for us today. My original plan was to do one from an Old Testament story and one from a New Testament parable, but probably won't have time to do both, but that's fine. Because we can often easily import Western secular ideas of what a leader is into church life. Other than a general sense in obey your leaders, remember your, and remember your leaders in the end of Hebrews, and possibly in Romans 12, the gift of leadership, although it's not 100% sure what that's quite referring to. Um, the word leader is not really used. People are pastors. They're evangelists. But we've adopted this thing about what a leader is and that has been borrowed from Western culture because everything's all about leadership, isn't it? You know, all the seminars, leadership, how to be a good leader. Okay. And I'm not totally dismissing it because there can be some helpful things in it because we do learn from our culture positives as well as negatives so don't mishear me but it just means that we have a model of what leadership is which is not necessarily the New Testament one okay Uh, someone I'm very close to planting a church um was recommended to read a certain book on Christian leadership. This is their book, read this. And he said, after the first chapter, I couldn't get any further. I said, why is that? Because I thought it was quite a good book. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> but he said, he said, I'm not an alpha male. With all this, all these Braveheart stuff and all that that people use as illustrations, <laughs> you know, charging into battle and all that. He said, I'm not that, I'm an artist. Fucking, I still feel called to lead. And somehow we put models up which may fit certain leaders, but don't fit all, but others can get disqualified because of it. Do you understand? Mm-hmm. Now, that particularly is important when you come to um, discerning leadership cross-culturally. Because the signals people give off of leadership is culturally bound so in the west we're looking for initiative people that will speak out yeah that's what we're looking at so what they're a real leader they've got potential really develop them and i found even when people are working in other cultures you know i've seen them pick, I can think of one particular context where they were saying, okay, who's going to lead? They were looking for indigenous leadership and there was a young guy who was a great preacher and was being developed towards leadership. But actually, he wasn't respected in his community for things that we as Westerners couldn't see. Because when you're dealing, when, when you're looking at other cultures, 
what they see as leadership is things like people they would honour and respect for their experience, not the people that say a lot, not even the best preachers. So if you want to build, and a lot of cultures, you don't do things until you're invited. Permission is massive. Whereas in a Western culture, if you're a potential leader, you're a push-thrower. And that's why in other cultures, someone who's to Westernize very unassuming, like Emmanuel that you just saw, are so good. Because they fulfill all the models of their culture for respected leadership. So when you're looking for leadership cross-culturally, you're looking for how people of that culture relate to someone, not... Sorry, I'm talking a bit more about this tomorrow, Richard, but uh, I will be here to be here tomorrow. So I thought I wanted to really... Because although the leadership is used in the New Testament the more frequent ones are either gifting, Ephesians 4, elder, overseer, deacon. And Paul just says, servant or slave. That's what, they're the words used for leader that don't fit Western model. The one that lays down his life for everybody else doesn't fit the Western model. Okay? Do you agree with me? So I'm going to read an Old Testament. No, no, I won't. I'll do the New Testament one, I think, because I just feel, I just, yeah, I just feel that's what I should do. Sorry, I've changed, changed my mind. Okay, so, okay, so I'm going to look at the New Testament model and the Old Testament one will have to store on my, notes for some other opportunity. Thanks for encouraging me to prepare it. Uh, <laughs> uh, I had felt when I first, that was what I wanted to major on, but I just changed my mind in the moment. Okay, so let's read another parable, shall we? Luke's Gospel, chapter 12. Verse 35. I title this a shocking parable. Parables, as well as undermining worldview, shocked worldview. They were shocking, um, undermining, almost seditious stories the parables because they we're, we're so familiar with them that we forget it okay what they were in their context but this is a particular shocking one stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men or women 35 who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he, that's the master, this is a shock. Culturally, see, culture, you need to appreciate culture and work within culture. But, sh but the gospel always shocks culture as well. So don't be afraid of that. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself, he the master, will dress himself for service and have them, the servants, recline at table. And reclining was the word for a formal meal. Okay? 
It wasn't just sitting as they would normally do. This was on the special couches and so on. Recline at table and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. This is the parable of the serving master. And the story is this. Jesus speaks to the people, speaks to his disciples and says, you've got to be servants like this who are prepared and ready to work and always be ready to work. The, the old translations of this said, with their loins girt. What that means is uh, they... The ro- long robe that they wore would be hitched up at the waist, ready for travel or work. So basically you're saying always have your robe hitched up so that you're always ready to serve. That's the story here. It's a common picture in the Bible. Also, keep your lamps burning. Only if you've lived without electricity do you understand the difficulty of lighting lamps once it's already dark. (laughs) Okay? So get them ready before it's dark. And don't let them go out when you need to be ready for work in the middle of the night. That's what he's saying. Like and be like people who are waiting for their master to return from a wedding party. Now, if you've ever been to a wedding in the East or in Africa, you'll understand that time is somewhat different when it comes to those special occasions. I remember hearing of a wedding somewhere in Africa and they'd announced that the wedding would start at 2 p.m. And at 2 p.m., or rather at 10 to 2, at the church were a few white guests. <laughs> <laughs> and at about half past two, quarter to three, the choir turned up for their rehearsal. <laughs> okay? And uh, eventually people started drifting in and the service got on the way about 5.30. <laughs> and I said, well, no, the wedding was late. No, it wasn't. The wedding started at 2. Because time was an event, not a measurement. And at two o'clock, I remember reading in this story, the parents of the bridegroom invited the pastor for lunch. That was two o'clock. The wedding had started. Do you understand? Of course he had. It was on time. And at two o'clock, people started getting ready to walk the hour, a couple of hours or so that we needed to get there. Every, at two o'clock, everyone stopped thinking everything else and started thinking wedding. The wedding started at two. Okay? But, um, the, it was like that here as well, because they wouldn't know which watch of the night <laughs> you'd come back. And the whole night was divided into four watches. You could have come back in the first watch, which meant it was probably not a terribly good wedding, or he got a bit bo- got a bit bored. Or he could come in the final watch, just before dawn, back from the wedding. And so, see, normally in a village community, 
activity would finish early. People would finish early when it got dark and go to bed soon after that and get up when dawn came. But weddings were different. Weddings you could go on all the night. And they had to be ready and available to serve in case their master needs anything when he gets back and be able to open the door when he knocks so that he doesn't have to make too much noise and wake up everybody else in the house. It's very practical, isn't it, this story? <laughs> okay. So Jesus is saying, you servants, always be ready. I know we need breaks. I know we need time out. I know many of us, particularly when we get older, need a little bit of time away from people. That's okay, Jesus went up the mountain and things like that. But availability for service rather than all built round a prescribed for six months diary is still important today in, for us. Okay? That's what Jesus is saying. Be available. Yeah. Look, a lot of the world doesn't really understand personal space. But Western culture believes in personal space, so we need to go along with it when we're serving in a Western culture. But, you know, my son-in-law is planting in a working-class town, and he was down with us, staying, him and Sharon, our daughter. And they were... Um, Got to do a house, a house group on Zoom because just one advantage of the pandemic, they could be with the in-laws instead of their own group. Uh, so, and it started around 7.30. And then at quarter to 10, I went in there and said, and, you know, you know, I have to do it when you have these conversations when Zoom's going. And... Yeah, and it went on for ages. I said, how can you do that? Why did it go so long? I couldn't stand at home go that long. Could you? <laughs> <laughs> he said, because some of the people didn't arrive till 9.30 because they'd been working on a shift late. Do you see? So some of the people left the home group. Others, pardon? Some arrived. Some arrived. Okay, and, and so you just have to learn, particularly if we're going to build multi-social churches, to be much more flexible. Learned that even with people in our church from Asian background, they say, I'd like you to come around for a meal sometime. Now in England, that means it's just, that's just a nice thing to say, to show I'm friendly. We don't mean it. <laughs> <laughs> or if we do, we then contact them and fix in our diary in five weeks' time, we've got a free evening and you can come round for a meal. That doesn't work for a lot of the population. It's multisocially or multicultural, isn't it? And the... So I, I began to understand, if an Asian brother or sister says to me, come round for a meal, it's then my responsibility to ring them up and say, I'm coming tomorrow. <laughs> Do you understand? So availability, Jesus was teaching in this context. Knocking would have been unusual. Strangers knock, friends and family call. You get both in Revelation. He who stands at the door and knocks, and then he calls. Because calling was more unusual. But a whisper wouldn't be heard through the door. A shout would be heard through the whole house. But a quick knock would just be heard by the waiting servants. 
Could I just say, the problem with the English word waiting is it's a bit passive. Often think about that with that scripture, you know, those that wait upon the Lord. Oh, gosh, waiting again. (laughs) (laughs) But it's not. It's much closer to the idea of expect. It's a very non-passive concept. In fact, when Russians are speaking to me, I can't tell whether they're saying, because the words are so similar, wait, they're waiting to see me or they're expecting me. And uh, so, and some Eastern translations would translate that as expect. Uh, because at any time, the master may withdraw, step away from the wedding party, and may need something done at home. They would probably, from tradition, know when the party finished, but wouldn't know when he might slip away. So always be ready to serve him. He may come when you don't expect it. It may be in the second or third watch. The feast may go on all night, but what if he comes home unexpectedly and needs something? Then Jesus said something that would come as a complete shock to everybody listening. Up until then, it made sense. That's what servants do. And he said, Now, these blessed are those slaves. Previously, they were called be like men. Now it says slaves. In other words, they are the lowest in the household. A, a rich household would have had the master, then the fam- strict hierarchy, the master, the family, the steward, the farming staff, the hired staff, the day workers, and the slaves. So these are the lowest of the low. And for these lowest of the low, the master does something amazing and countercultural. And this shock is introduced by Jesus' words, Amen, I say to you, or as the old translation said, Verily, verily, I say unto you. Amen, I say to you. In other words, listen to this bit. Even if you haven't been listening to the rest, listen to this bit. The master picks up his robe and tucks it in. Why is he doing that? Is he going somewhere? Is he going to have a journey? We've got to pack his sandwiches for the journey. Why? Is he going to, is he going to scrub the floor? No, that's the slave's job. Unthinkable. Now, even more surprising than scrubbing the floor is he's going to serve them. They are told to recline on these special low couches where only a formal meal took place and where the slaves would never, ever be allowed to sit. There's no culture in the world where such a dramatic act is not a shock. You can think of the most important part, person in your community who comes and says, you just recline. I'm going to do all the work. It doesn't happen. The rich always have people working for them. The, high, the people who are senior in the hierarchy always have people working for them. And this was so powerful. It was such a shocking parable. And he serves them a meal. Where had he got food from? They're all... He, the food wasn't prepared. The master was at a wedding feast. He didn't need anything to eat to eat. He must have in grace thought about it and brought some food home for the wedding feast for his slaves. And if he'd ever said that to anybody... Oh, I'm just going to take... I mean, it would be normal to... There's always far too much food. You know, that's culturally essential. <laughs> it's always too much. Then we'll say, well, you're taking it... Yeah, that'd be normal. Take some home. Yeah. 
I've got to serve my slave. Unthinkable. I just feel the prophetic nature of this parable almost exceeds the feet washing one even of Jesus. You know, it's it's so odd. Forgive me. So what are the radical lessons for leaders today? This is consistent throughout New Testament, but so very forcible and shocking in this scripture that we've just got to get hold of this. Jesus glorifies serving and servanthood. It's not an issue of status. It's an issue of willingness to take the lowest place. And this undercuts every culture. And it undercuts Western celebrity culture. And it undercuts celebrity preachers. And it undercuts platforms. And it undercuts everything like that. And it must be... And status and those sort of things must be eradicated from Christian leaders in this season in which we are going for. Do you understand? I'm I'm labouring a point in this one. Because we can still feel more important, can't we? It's a danger when a church grows. When when you're planting a church, you know, the early people do everything, don't they? Or when, when you... Or when you suddenly have a, I remember when we sent out the King's Arms and Richard and I were working together at Woodside. <laughs> we, 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 we still haven't got over it really, have we? <laughs> but, so, we lost all, virtually all our 20s. All the kids workers. All went to plant it, you know. Great. The result in Bedford has been fantastic that we've planted rather than kept them all together. Never have grown like that, I don't think. But I remember, so one week I would preach and Richard would do the kids' work, all the kids together. The next week, Richard would preach, I would do all the kids' work together. <laughs> okay? <laughs> do you remember? We were suddenly shocked. We had to recruit new teams and everything else. And, uh, and, and so you, you, this attitude, I am, and Jesus says it in both ways. The first part of the story says, you always be willing to, waiting to serve. Have your robes hitched up for when the master comes back. Because you must. Then he turns it upside down and says, even those that don't think they should serve, if they're following the example of the kingdom of God, are those that serve and honour those who they serve. And Paul touches on this in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. He says, those parts of the body that humanly have little honour, you clothe with greater honour. What does that mean? Do you ever think about it? It means you don't just serve the poor, you honour the poor. And we've got into a, you know, in, in certain parts of the Western church, there's a big stress on honouring the pastor and all this sort of stuff. No, no. Bible says, well, yeah, you cannot honour the pastor, if you like, but the Bible says <laughs> you, you honour the church is a place where the least honourable person receives honour and is served by those to whom naturally honour would apply. wanted to, in this season, because the sort of big platform thing has been undermined through this season and needs to be, okay? 
I'm not saying big numbers. I'm talking about attitudes. Do you see? It's attitudes that's the issue. And all this sort of, almost competition. A good friend of mine who serves wonderfully in North India, but he also is a well-known speaker and speaks at some of these huge leadership conferences in the States. And I was chatting to him and he said, it was weird, he said, I was sitting in the, you know, at these conferences, the, the speakers all sit in a separate place and, you know, just turn up to do their thing and drink coffee the rest of the time and all that sort of stuff. Don't bother to go to the worship and things like that, you know. And uh, the, he said, I was the only one in the green room who flew there on a scheduled flight. Every other speaker went on a private jet. Their private jet. And he said, he said, it's weird, because I'm serving the poor all the time. And then I get into that context, and I suddenly think, am I inadequate, because I don't have a private jet? Do you know what I mean? It gets into your spirit. Now, obviously, most of us are not so privileged. But... You haven't got one yet, have you, Richard? Not yet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but that whole thing is turned upside down now. And scripture turns it upside down. And Jesus glorifies this. It's not an issue of status. It's an issue of willingness to take the lowest place, which the feed washing, fruit washing thing showed. Paul delighted in calling himself, and I touched on this earlier, a slave of Jesus Christ. To be a slave of Jesus is true freedom. Paul said, I have an obligation, both to Jews and to Greeks, to preach the gospel. Obligation. Westerners, Western modern culture doesn't believe in obligation. Oh, you mustn't oblige me to do anything. Paul says... It's not my job, it's my obligation, responsibility. The key of leadership is responsibility and willingness to do anything. And waiting or just being available is important. In our age of rush, the idea of just waiting or expecting to be available is countercultural. Why well, should I just hang around? Nothing might happen. Jesus said, hang around. Be there, available to people. You know, I've preached in some of these huge churches, well, not, not in our family, where, you know, the, the ushers team guard you from the congregation, you know what I mean? special, there's this special line and they all line up and you walk out and you preach these, make these big churches. Ah. And I, I say, I, I remember saying, they got quite upset with me, I want to be talking to people. <laughs> Even if I didn't understand their language. I mean, it's just, you just need to be there. Because you're an available person. John Milton's poem wrote a poem based on this, which is often quoted at sort of national days and things. They also serve who only stand and wait. Okay, that comes from that this parable, Milton's poem on that, and it's just. And this is first a challenge we must fulfil. Because the New Testament key to leadership is an example. Don't let anybody look down on you because you are young, but be an example. Not, don't let anyone look down on you, you tell them what to do. But be an example in love, in your behavior, in your godliness. Be an example. That's the essence of Christian leadership. And so it's a challenge we must rise to ourselves, but it is also a challenge we must put right through the church. Are you a servant 
or a consumer that demands service. Okay, because the consumer mentality has got into our churches. Yeah, isn't it? Or even things like, oh, well, that church didn't meet my needs anymore, so I moved on to another one. Yuck, it was never designed to meet your needs. <laughs> Jesus meets your needs. It's a designed to be a place where you can serve for the kingdom of God and take responsibility. And we need to teach this. But we can't teach it if we're not like it, which is the whole point here. The master, Jesus says, tell the, the servants to be always ready to serve. And then the master demonstrates what it's like to be already, always ready to serve by honoring the slaves and serving them. So you be an example and then do teach it because we have to break you know, if you're, when I'm preaching in some other cultures and they've got particular strongholds, one culture I often, I always preach on unforgiveness in almost every sermon I do because in that culture, that is the biggest sign of weakness is to forgive someone and they have no cultural understanding of what that might mean. Well, in Western culture, You say, so I preach on unforgiveness in that culture. Just to, you know, I didn't, don't say your culture doesn't forgive. Blah, blah, blah. I just tell a Bible story about forgiving. So, but the Western culture, the two huge things, it's not just all the secular <laughs> stuff and all the sexual immorality and so on. That, that's a huge issue. But the two things that under, that underneath that are consumerism and individualism. They are the two things. Because even the sort of permissive society and the uh, sexual freedom so-called is based on a consumer view of the world. I mean, it's been around a long time. I was there in Corinth. Food for the body, body for food. Paul was meaning but didn't quite say, so you're saying, you know, the body needs sex, so you just go and get it where you want. And that's massively come back, but it's undergirded by this consumer mentality. And therefore, if our churches are to demonstrate the kingdom, they must demonstrate something different. Do you, do you see what I mean? And so... Are you available an individualism? It's horrible. There's a book being written recently, I do commend it. Um, misreading scripture through individualistic eyes. Because we miss, and the English language doesn't help because you is both singular and plural, which it isn't generally. Have different words. Okay. Online. So, how can I serve? Is that the attitude? No, how can I have my needs, wants, expectations met? And consumer mentality is even more pre- prevalent again past, uh, post pandemic. Online services, though helpful, pandered to that. Okay, well, we had to do them, but they pandered to that. Even having just small groups, if they're just me wanting to meet with my friends at a time that suits me, that's consumerism, just as much as a megachurch. Do you see? So we're responsible to serve like this master who had the right to be served. They were his slaves. So servant leadership is shocking. It offends all our cultural norms. Servant leadership means I don't ask others to do something I wouldn't be prepared to do myself, unless it's something I'm technologically incompetent to do. Then I have to. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Whether it's putting up a whether it's putting up a shelf or working the PA desk. So the. Yeah, you can put up shelves. 
for, for all levels of leadership, are you available? Are you willing to give up your fun at the wedding to think of your lowly and despised people who would not be allowed to the wedding feast? Which, of course, is another big difference in an Eastern wedding. We had an Asian wedding in our church not long ago. And everybody was invited from the church. Massive. I mean, they were quite well off as well. But it, And some of our folk on our social action programs have just come into our social action thing on Thursdays. Amazing. We've been invited to this wedding. Because they think community. Now, I'm not saying we can all do that in our culture. Not enough halls you can go there anyway. But do you know what I'm saying? It's attitude. Servant leadership is willing to work hard and to respect others too. Search servant leadership notices how people are and thinks about what they may be missing. That's what he was doing here. Well, these guys never get to the wedding. Never go to the wedding. They're slaves. Servant leadership doesn't follow the management manual, but allows grace to inconvenience them, which the management manual say you must never do. <laughs> Don't be inconvenienced. Be productive and available, being and doing. And they're commended for their faithfulness and not just their achievement. Okay, now, being faithful can be an excuse for keeping something going, which is traditional but doesn't work. But waiting in faithfulness is commended. Paul describes himself in 1 Corinthians 4 as a servant and a steward. Okay. I've taught this parable once in Pakistan. And because it's so close a culture to what Jesus is describing, it was real fun. So I'll just finish with this. I better, haven't I? Yeah. Yeah, can I finish with this story? You can finish with what have you? Okay, fine. Okay, oh great. Yeah, I don't want to talk for another half an hour. And, and you and you wanted even less. I mean, I could, but <laughs> I could do the other story. But the <laughs> so uh, Richard will know because he's been there. But when you we were they were gathering this big meeting and bringing all their churches together. You've been to those in the big. It wasn't an Angl- it was an Anglican or something church they used, and uh, of course we go in there. We're honoured guests, so all the pews because it was an Anglican church, and uncontextually that was taken to Pakistan, like it was across Africa and all sorts of places, and uh, as the as the Anglican church spread. But we guilty of the same sort of thing sometimes. But the, uh, and then at the front, there were these big, big armchairs. And in those armchairs, myself and the brother who had come with me, we would sit. And then, just a minute, just a minute. Don't anticipate the story. I'm going to get there. <laughs> he wants to get to the point of the story too quickly. But the... Uh, yeah. And, uh, the and, there, and there was them, and there was the Pervez who leads the churches were sitting there. And there was that, I don't know if you met him, with big moustaches, an ex-government minister who used to, you met him, yeah, who all, yeah, always used to come when they got guests from England coming and he was a government minister and then he's retired now. Um, I've spent quite a lot of time with him, prayed around his house, done all sorts of strange things I shouldn't have done really. But uh, the, uh, um, contextual, you know. And so, so he was a very, respected person in society, so he was sitting on one of these big chairs, and there were one or two others, I can't remember who, other honoured guests. And of course, halfway through the service, we're all, as Richard was saying, garlanded. That's lovely. I mean, that's how to welcome your guest speaker, isn't it? 
Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, real flowers, aren't they, too? Not just, oh, yeah. Okay, so these I've put around you, and if you're particularly important, you get three or four of them. And, and, and then when I got up to preach, the, because they wanted to face the preacher, all the people in the honoured seats went and sat on the front row of the pews. Had to be uncomfortable for a while. So I thought, I've preached on this. I thought, hmm, how do I really get this home? And so, because I knew the people there, because I've been to all the various churches, I knew who came from the poorest church. I knew some of the people who had very poor jobs, if they had jobs at all. And I could see them sitting there towards the back. So I walked right to the back of this church. I said to them, this is what Jesus did in this parable. And I asked them to come, men and women. And I brought them up to the front of the church. They wondered what was going to happen. And I said, please sit down in these huge armchairs at the front. They looked at me. And the dynamic in the room. <laughs> and so I sat them down in these seats. And then I went and got all the discarded garlands and I actually knelt down on the floor at their feet and garlanded each one of them. And I said, that's what Jesus was teaching in this story. Okay? Now, I don't know how you do that in our sort of culture that pretends not to be hierarchic, but is. Do you know what I mean? It's... <laughs> We don't wear different clothes. We don't sit in different seats, not in most churches. But, but do you understand? This is what it means. And Jesus says, this is Christian leadership. And this is Christ also how every person in our church, an attitude that they need to learn, but they can't learn it unless you're demonstrating it. And it spells the death knell to consumerism. It honours within a community. So that's non-individualism. And that's how we are to be as Christian leaders. And I've had many opportunities internationally to show this, but I don't know I'm showing it. That's the weird thing until afterwards. So Andre Bondarenko, who you know. First time I met him, he didn't speak any English. And I'd, we'd done a conference for all Russian speakers who were interested in getting connected with New Frontiers. People came from all over the place, from Ukraine, Russia, and other places. And we stayed in the same, not very salubrious accommodation. And Andre came up to us through an interpreter and said, we were sitting and having a meal. We one or two of the guys there, because I'd made sure that the English team never sat together. We'd got enough interpreters to make sure they could all sit at the table with Russian speakers. So I organised that beforehand because I wanted to show something. And uh, Andre said, this is the first conference I've been to with international guests from the West, of which you've been to many, where you've stayed in the same accommodation, where you've sat all through the services instead of just going to the one that you're preaching at. And you've ate with us at the mealtime. He said, I've never been to a conference with Western speakers like it. 
like that before. They always stay in a different hotel. I mean, I'd never even thought, thought about this. It never even occurred to me to do that. They all stayed at a different hotel. They would just come in for their sessions and have their meals separately. I thought, of course not. I would never do that. But, you know, now that was the first thing that struck a guy who's now one of our key apostolic leaders internationally. First thing that struck him was that. I don't say that to blow my own trumpet. I'm just trying to... Because we all do that, don't we, when we travel. And it's what God wants to reproduce in us in this season when, A, the centre of Christianity is moving, has moved from the west to the east and the south. That's happened. So we've got to drop all our pretensions to the Westerners know best. We've got to die to that. We've got to die to it in our own churches when we have multicultural churches. We've got to honour every ethnicity. You know, there's a lot of talk about that awful racism in the Yorkshire Cricket Club. It's not just a question of not saying racial things rather honouring and serving all ethnicities. Understand? More than even, even though I'm glad that's now coming up and can hopefully come into the light and be dealt with because it's a reflection of British society. But it's more than that. We say how can we so adapt our churches that we honour those from other places, not just that they have to fit in with us? Do you follow me? It's a whole attitude. And the same applies socially. It's a whole attitude to Christian leadership, but not just Christian leadership, it needs to be reproduced in the church because our churches are very consumerist now in a way they weren't at one time. May God help us to do that.